to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Let me just get, I think my mic is on. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, verse 21, I'm sorry, pardon me, 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, do heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again for gathering us here together to open the Bible. Oh Lord, give us eyes to perceive and hearts to understand and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, illuminate the Bible to us. May we not only hear the word of God, but may we be doers of the word of God. I pray that the message would initiate a transformation and that it would be sanctified and cleansed and renewed and encouraged. Oh Lord, and that you would um, give us hope today. Heavenly Father, I pray for my mind and my heart and my will. I pray, dear God, that as as I preach, that you would carry me along according to the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory and honor and praise in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we, um, we are starting this new passage today, which continues in what we picked up on last week, which was the household and how the household is to uh, be managed, and that there's order and structure in the household. Uh, So obviously, the New Testament was written in the first century A.D. Being that the New Testament was written in the first century A.D., we have to understand there is a context here, a cultural context to our passage today. Um, And this context is referring to uh, slaves. And obviously, uh, the topic of slavery uh, is a very uh, um, uh, important topic, um, importantly, because in our own nation, we have a history of slavery in America, um, and, and it was a, a terrible mark on our history and on the ethic of the United States of America. So, um, and, and having moved on from that, we, we still see in some ways uh, how it affects how people are thinking and feeling and and, and has a, is a very sensitive topic. Uh, clearly, slavery is an ungodly thing. It is a wicked institution, and we're thankful that in America it was put to death a long time ago. Um, but nevertheless, slavery as an institution was the dominating economic uh, um, force in the ancient world and has been for thousands of years. Uh, the institution of slavery... Um, took a very long time to come to an end. And in the first century, when Paul is writing to the Colossians, uh, slaves were members and considered members of the household, like sons, like daughters, like brothers, like sisters. They were members of the family, although not fully members of the family. And so what I'd like to do today in our sermon is address this topic, first and foremost, through a historical contextual analysis so that we can distinguish between first century chattel slavery and 19th century chattel slavery in the United States of America because they were very different. Um, but more importantly to understand is, and, and, and drawing out of this is the implications of how it applies to us today. None of us are slaves, so what are the principles that we can draw out of this to apply it to our Christian walk? And so I want to be careful because on one side, I don't want to spend too much time trying to draw the principles out and lose the meaning of the passage. But at the same time, 
I don't want to spend too much time in a, in a topic that is irrelevant to us because it has been irrelevant for since the eight, 1800s. So with that said, let's dive in. And I think the first thing we need to do is explore the historical context. So that's the first point. What is the historical context of slavery in the ancient world? Well, slavery in the ancient world has both similarities and differences to slavery, um, chattel slavery in the 19th century, for instance. So, so for example, uh, when we talk about slavery in America, that slavery was based mostly on the slave trade that existed between Europe and Africa and was a race-based uh, slavery. It was, a, it was a horrible institution and it was grossly abused uh, and, and, and many, many people died and were mistreated. Families were torn apart. Uh, it was a great evil that took place. In the ancient world, it was quite different. Slavery was the result of ancient conquest, of military conquest. So when we talk about the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire conquered the world, so to speak, in its time. But every time the Roman military advanced and conquered a region... By virtue of that conquest, everybody became slaves of the Roman Empire. Now, within the Roman Empire, slavery was not simply something that was designated to say, okay, go work in the fields and you know, farm, and that's, that's a slave's job. That was not the, the consideration within ancient Rome. Rather, it didn't matter if you were a physician. It didn't matter if you were a professor. It didn't matter how high of a status or education you had. You were either slave or free. And so in ancient Rome, about close to 50% of the population were considered enslaved. And among enslaved people, you had people who did work in the field, but you had physicians. You did have those who were, who were teachers. You had those who were, you know, had higher aspects of or educational aspects and rendered their services to their masters in those respects. And within a family, you would have slaves, especially among the wealthy and those who were free. That was the system. It's the way it worked. And I think as we go through this, we have to understand that the New Testament wasn't written to overthrow the system, but rather address how Christians operated within the system. Another thing that we need to understand is very different, that at the time of Paul's writing, slaves were able to marry, to have children, to earn money, to buy, sell, and trade, and eventually they were enabled to earn enough money to actually purchase their freedom, and in some cases, they would purchase their freedom and become more prosperous than even their masters. And so we see there is a major distinction because slavery did not, was not characterized this way in America. And so clearly, there is a difference. But there is one thing in common that the institution had, whether it's in the ancient world or it was in the 19th century America, is that it's dehumanizing. It's a perversion of the image of God. God never intended human beings to own other human beings as property. We are not property of another human being. Every human being is created in the image and dignity of God, and to enslave any human being is to reduce the value of the life of that person and treat them as a thing. And that dishonors God and it dishonors the creation mandate of who human beings are. And so one asks the question is reading this text, what is Paul referring to? If he's telling slaves to obey their masters, isn't he just helping the system move along? Shouldn't he speak out and shouldn't he condemn the system? Shouldn't he say instead slaves rebel against your masters, masters let your slaves free? I mean, these are questions, these are genuine questions that people have asked and will ask. But we have to remember something. Paul wasn't called to be a social revolutionary. He wasn't called to change the Roman Empire or change the systems and institutions of society. Paul was called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only was he called to be apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but his goal and mission was to bring all mankind to salvation, to know Jesus Christ to be saved of their sins, and to have eternal life. In the grand scheme of things, Paul was preaching the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. So that in Christ, as Galatians 3.28, Paul says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ. 
And so those who hear the gospel who are slaves can say, I am one with Christ. And those who are masters in the ancient world can say, I am one in Christ. It, it, it matters not your condition in the worldly aspect, but our condition before God. Wayne Grudem comments this, the Bible does not approve or command slavery any more than it approves or commands persecution of Christians. Now follow his reasoning. When the author of Hebrews commends his readers by saying, you joyfully accept the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession of an abiding one in Hebrews 10.34, that does not mean that the Bible supports or prescribes the plundering of Christians' property or that it commands theft. It only means that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because their heavenly treasure cannot be stolen. Similarly, when the Bible tells slaves to be submissive to their masters, it does not mean that the Bible supports or commands slavery, but only it tells people who are slaves how they should respond in that situation. And so I think it's important to understand that that principle. Just because there is not, there, the scripture is telling us how to respond in a situation doesn't mean the scripture condones something. But secondly, there is enough in the Bible and there is enough in Paul's writings that lay the groundwork and basis to, to say or to condemn that slavery is unethical or unbiblical. As Christians develop in their worldview, and eventually slavery would be thrown out and give way to a feudal system in Europe, which, by the way, wasn't much better. The peasant was just the medieval slave. But regardless, there was still an aspect where the peasant was a free man and no longer a slave. And so there was some aspect to it that Christianity had influenced. And when I say that the Bible speaks to the morality or immorality of slavery, it's written plainly to see in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Paul considers the, the, the whole uh, um, economy of slave trading to be immoral and ungodly. So, so he's writing to Timothy about the purpose of the law. And he says, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Whose law? God's law. It's made for the lawbreakers, the rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. That's a broad category of people. And who was included there? Those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, and for slave traders and liars and perjurers. So slave traders are in the same category in the apostles' mindset as those who kill their parents. Clearly it is an immoral and ungodly and wicked and unrighteous institution. I think he, it's indicated there. In the case of Philemon, Philemon um, was a friend of Paul's who supported Paul's ministry, and he had a slave who ran away, Onesimus. And Onesimus uh, tied himself to, to Paul. And so how does Paul write to Philemon and how to deal with the situation? He says in Philemon 15 through 17, he says, this, he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul's telling Philemon, take back Onesimus and free him. He's your brother in Christ. Treat him as you would treat me. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23, Paul addresses the issue in a way where he demonstrates that the kingdom of God is more than social status here on earth. And although he does say that manumission is something to acquire if you can, not to be bogged down in life about your status. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he was called to the Lord as a slave, listen to this, is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. That is so powerful what Paul is saying there. In other words, what he's saying, when you merely see life from the perspective 
of the horizontal and how you fit in in your dealings with people, you're a slave of men. You're a slave of the thoughts and philosophies of this world. Even if you are a slave in the ancient world, he's saying you are utterly free if you are the Lord's. Our identity, again, I I talked about this several times through Colossians, is not bound up what the world says you are. Our identity is bound up in who we are in Christ. Ultimately, Paul's ministry was not to be a social activist. He was an apostle of Christ. And as such, he preached the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation unto men. And so we understand that the gospel has power to change men's hearts, and eventually when it changes men's hearts, it changes institutions. We live in an ungodly world. We live in in a world where wicked people with wicked ideas run wicked institutions. You cannot change that because you cannot change men's hearts. You go for the heart. You minister to the heart of man. When people have different hearts and they love God and they have a different value system, you will see systems change. You will see institutions change. But as long as men have hard hearts and they hate God, you will have evil in society. You cannot change that. You could try. You could try as hard as you will to change laws and to make people moral, but you cannot legislate morality. It's something God has to do upon men's hearts. Well, the overarching concept here clearly um, brings us to the historical context. We see how slavery existed in the ancient world, but now we come to the, to the next point of our sermon. is okay, well, what does this mean for us? Well, in order to see what it means for us, we need to understand what it meant for the original audience. I can't simply say, well, this is, for, this is what it means to us. No, there's an original meaning And then from that, we draw a secondary meaning. The original audience, they actually were slaves. And so how does the apostle deal? How does the Holy Spirit inspire the apostle to deal with those who are in those situations? Now, you could imagine for many slaves, this is not an easy situation. In many, I said, the dehumanizing aspect of it, um, the, the crushing weight of feeling this hopelessness, And yet at the same time, the word of God says, here's how you're to respond. And so we look to the passage and it says this, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And so the first thing that's called to is obedience. It is simply said that the heart of the matter is keeping the structure of obedience in order. He's not telling them to rebel. He's not telling them to, to disrupt everything, but to be submissive, to be obedient. And this is a theme we see throughout Scripture. And the ultimate example of that is Christ himself, who was totally submissive and obedient to the Father. As Christians, we're not called to fight. We're called to be yielding, to follow Christ's example. Christ, who, who gave himself freely and laid his life down so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. It's a concept that we don't like. I was talking about this recently in a men's Bible study, but why is Islam such a popular jailhouse religion as opposed to Christianity today? A majority of young men who go to prison convert to Islam today. It used to be Christianity. Well, well, the reason why is Islam is a religion about fighting. It's about war. It's about violence. It's about, you know, taking back what belongs to you. On the other hand, Christianity is about about yielding and being passive and trusting in God in the worst of circumstances. Well, of course, the, the doctrine of Islam is going to be more appealing because people are angry and they want, to, they, want, they want to claim something back. It encourages and justifies violence. Christianity does nothing of the kind. It's hard. It's hard to be a Christian, isn't it? It's hard when you see injustice and unfairness and part of you wants to fight And yet, we're told to trust in God and don't fight. Just rest in his grace. That's not easy sometimes. On a personal level, on a broader level, we like to fight. We want want to fight for our rights. And balancing that is not easy all the time. There's three aspects here. Paul says to be obedient, to be sincere, and to do everything unto the Lord. That is what is the biggest thing here. You see, the overarching point that undergirds all of this is Paul wants 
those who are slaves to see that their ultimate master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, obedience can be easier if you understand that it's ultimately to Christ. The following orders and doing what you're told is easier if you know you're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. He says, Obey them who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye services, people pleasers, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Work which you do heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Notice in, in, in 24b, you are serving the Lord Christ. Three times Paul emphasizes the importance of recognizing it is the Lord who you are serving. And while it may seem like I'm just serving men, Paul's saying, no, you're serving God. Everything you're doing, you're doing to God. And I think that the implication and application for us is very easy to understand because even in our earthly jobs, it is very difficult sometimes to do what's right. Many of us, well, all of us work. I think most of us work here. And some of us like our jobs a lot. and Some of us do not like our jobs much. And for those of you who do not like your jobs or they're not pleasant jobs or you have unpleasant supervisors, you may not have the ability to get another job and you're, I guess, what you can call stuck. And when you're stuck in a job where you don't like it, there may be times where you're asked to do things you don't want to do, where you feel that you're treated unfairly, where you feel like, I don't deserve this, I deserve better. And maybe you have a union rep who could represent you, maybe you don't. But the principle applies. Whatever you do, you do it unto Jesus. See, although we're not slaves, when you make an agreement to become an employee with someone, you are agreeing to terms that during a certain period of time, your employer owns you. He doesn't own you as a human being, but, but he owns your time. You agree to get paid a certain amount of money, and render a service in that amount of time. And, and you, as a Christian, are responsible to live up to the standard of that agreement. You, as a Christian, are responsible to treat your employer with respect and honor and dignity as a testimony unto the Lord Jesus Christ. In many ways, Christians... Give a great testimony. Employers love Christians because they know, generally speaking, that Christians do good jobs. It's been my experience and it's been what I've seen, not just in members, but in my own life. Employers love Christians because Christians do good jobs. They work hard. They do it unto Christ. But there are other Christians who are professing Christians who do crummy jobs, who lie, scheme, and cheat, and complain, and they bring horrible testimonies to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we serving is the ultimate question. Even in the local church, we're serving. We're serving in different aspects. There are so many different ways. Not everything is observable. What about so many who work in the background, serving in the areas that you do not see, that you take for granted? They're serving. But they're doing it unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just about me up here or Amari. We... Yes, we're leading in this aspect, but there, all of you are serving to some degree or another. All of our service matters because we're doing it not for men. We're not doing it to be people pleasers. We're not doing it for the applause of men. We're doing it for Christ. And if we're doing it for any other reason, then we're doing it for the wrong motives. <clears throat> Paul tells the slaves to be obedient as opposed to being subversive. I think there's two great examples of this in the Bible, Joseph and Daniel. If we remember in the Old Testament, Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt. And rather than see this as an opportunity to subvert or to fight, I was treated unfairly. My brothers, this is a mistake. Let me go. I want to get out. Let's meet my father. My father has a lot of money. He'll pay you. Get me out of this. Joseph humbly acquiesced to the situation God placed him in. And for many years, Joseph suffered. He was treated cruelly. He was treated unjustly. He was treated unreasonably. 
But it tells us something about him. It says he never wavered from the Lord. Joseph never turned his back on God. He always trusted in God. And through that, God blessed him and elevated him till eventually he became the prime minister of Egypt. And God honored him. He saved his brothers. He saved his father. He saved all of Israel. If he had fought and bucked and was subversive, there would have been no salvation. Wasn't it Daniel who was taken as a slave, ripped from his mother and father and his brothers and sisters, stripped of all his dignity, and then taught in the ways of Babylon, stripped of his identity as a Jew, having to embrace a pagan religion and identity, changing his name, everything. How degrading could you get? And yet he never stopped to honor God. He never once flinched. In fact, Joseph and Daniel are two of the only characters in the Bible that you really can't say anything bad about. There's no record of sin on either one of them. Daniel upheld his dignity, his honor, his faith in God when he was thrown in the, the, the fiery uh, um, uh, uh, pit, when he, was, no, he was thrown, when he was thrown in the lion's den. God honored him. God protected him. Oh, that we would have such faith that we would have such faith. No wonder why Paul could say in 1 Timothy 6, 1, let all those who are under a yoke as slaves, and it is a yoke, let them regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled. My brothers and sisters, we should be good employees. We should work and honor our employers and do what's right and follow instructions and not seek to do things our way or to do things differently because the name of God is at stake. What a disgrace it is when Christians behave in a horrible manner, uncooperative in their workplace and bring disgrace and shame upon the name of Christ. Secondly, he says, do things with sincerity. Do it from the heart, not just to be... Uh, to please people, but realizing we're serving God. You know, and, and, it, and it, this, is, this is interesting because I think this is true of many of us. We only do things right when people are watching. All right. It's like when you're a kid and, and, and you know, Mom, I'll clean my room. Yeah, I'm cleaning it. And you're sitting there and you're doing your own thing. And as soon as Mom peeps in, oh, yeah, I'm cleaning, I'm moving. We do things to be seen by people, but we don't realize it's God who sees everything. I'm so thankful for this. God sees all. He sees it all. I am so thankful for that. I'm thankful that he sees me and knows who I am. And I'm thankful that he sees each and every one of us. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He's the one who we must please. He's the one in whom we must serve. If we forget that, we forget in everything. So maybe you take a two-hour lunch break at work. Maybe you extend it to three hours. Well, the boss doesn't know. He's not around right now. He doesn't see what I'm doing. God sees it. If you're taking a three-hour lunch break when you were given a one hour, you're stealing from your boss. Well, I, I took a bunch of supplies from, from, the, from, the, uh, from the warehouse or, you know, nobody knows. They're not using it. Or I work in a restaurant. Let me take some of the food home. Nobody's going to see what I'm doing. God sees it. God sees it. And that's what matters, isn't it? Isn't it? In the end of the day, nobody gets away with anything. And I'm thankful for that. Nobody, none of us will get away with anything. God will hold us all accountable one day. And so the, the question comes then, doing things sincerely. The word there where Paul says, um, do things uh, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. That phrase there, sincerity of heart, is translated from the Greek to mean single-hearted purpose. It literally means that whatever you do, you do with a single 
focus that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it well. And I'm not looking to the left. I'm not looking to the right. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. It's sincerity and it's a sense of knowing I'm called by God to my vocation to do what I do. And I want to do it honorably and excellently. This is true Christian character. The true Christian does their very best when no one's looking. The insincere Christian does their best only when they're being observed. God knows our hearts. Next thing, we're told that in this service, we're to do so, and the motivating factors here are three, fearing the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It goes back to this reality of the day, not only that he's our master. So in other words, do not fear your earthly masters, right? And there is a sense where you could fear them, right? They may beat you, they may... They may, you know, lock you or away or, or something, uh, I, whatever horrific ways that slaves are treated in the ancient world. We may fear our earthly employers because they could fire us or make our lives more miserable. I was um, talking to Amari one day. He was telling me that in the NYPD, when, when police do the wrong thing, they get, they get highway therapy. And that's to teach them a lesson. So if they buck the authorities... If you work in the Bronx normally, you live in the Bronx, they'll send you to Staten Island to make sure you learn your lesson through all that highway therapy. Do we do things to avoid the punishment of earthly employers? Or do we do things with the reality of knowing that God will hold us accountable? The fear of the Lord constrains us. I am convinced. I am thoroughly convinced we don't fear God enough. I really am. Why don't we fear God enough? Well, it tells us in Ecclesiastes 8 why. Because a judgment isn't executed immediately. We think that because God doesn't burst out like he did against Ananias and Sapphira, because God doesn't burst out like he did uh, in, in the Old Testament with Nadab and Abihu, that somehow it's okay. We somehow think that because God's not striking people dead left and right, eh, God's all right. He's, he's, he's cool with what I'm doing. And I think we have to understand the reality that if God doesn't burst out against us, it's only building up discipline down the line. It'll just mean a stronger stroke, a stronger blow. The fear of God is the recognition that God sees and knows all and that he can discipline us. If you're a if you're a believer, God will discipline you in love. But the chastening and disciplining of the Lord, as Scripture says in Hebrews 12, can be painful for the moment. I have been chastened by the Lord, and it is painful. I'm sure you have too. And if you are a believer and you have not been chastened by the Lord, you say, gee, I must be a pretty good guy because I haven't been chastened yet. Hebrews 12 tells us that you're not a child of God. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. If you're not disciplined, you're not loved. And if you're not disciplined, then the only thing you have to fear is judgment. Because the Bible says that God will bring judgment on the unbeliever and the wicked. But you are no longer under condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen? So we can receive discipline. And that alone should trigger the fear of God. The, the discipline of God, although not the condemnation of God, is not something to take lightly. David was disciplined by God. And let's examine what his discipline looked like. Well, one, David lost his firstborn out of Bathsheba. He died, a stillborn. He fasted day and night, the baby died. That was it. Then the next thing that happened to David, several years later, it seems like things were coasting. Solomon was born, everything was cool. One of his sons decides to rape one of his daughters. Brings scandal and disgrace. David mishandles the situation. The daughter who was raped, her brother, decides, I'm angry at my father for mishandling the situation, and I'm going to get even with my father. He stirs in hatred and anger, and he rebels against his father. His name is Absalom. And a, quite a bit of David's story is taken up in Absalom's absolute humiliation of his father. 
He brought so much dishonor, disgrace, and humiliation to his father. And David never once retaliated. Do you know why? Because when he committed sin with Bathsheba, it was Nathan the prophet who said, David, God will forgive you, but the sword shall never depart from your house. You see, he knew it was God's discipline. And he took it. He took it because he knew that he was still a child of God and he loved God, but he also knew he had this coming. And it was painful. Ultimately, he watched Absalom die, slaughtered by Joab. And it tormented him. What a horror story. Sin brings horror into our lives. And if we don't see the immediate effects of it, it doesn't mean horror's not coming. The fear of God should constrain us. And finally, we do everything we do is to the Lord heartily. That means we do it our best. We do things excellently. And we know that ultimately we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to the reward. A slave in the ancient world had no inheritance. When a slave died, he died with nothing. If the master of the household died, the slave got nothing. The slave had no hope of a future. And so the promise of an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus to the slaves of the first century, the promise of an eternal inheritance to the slaves of the 19th century is what kept people going through the day. You know, you read a lot of the old hymns from the 19th century, the slave hymns, and do you know that all of them were about heaven? Almost all of them were about heaven. The stormy banks of Jordan, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it'll be when we all see Jesus. These are all the slave hymns. It was the hope, it was the only hope that people in such a condition could grab onto. And Paul says, let this be your motivating factor, the reward in heaven. In this life, there are going to be many times where your service at work, your service at home, your service at church will go unnoticed unrewarded and unthanked. But trust me, there is a reward. And the rewarder is not on this earth. Sometimes we will never see the reward in this life. I can tell you that. Didn't it tell us in Hebrews 11 that Abraham, right? God promised him the promised land. He promised him Canaan. He promised him uh, uh, all this. But Abraham never saw it. He never actually experienced the fullness of that promise. It was later generations of his descendants who experienced that promise, but it says he looked forward to the reward and he anticipated it with faith. And he died a man of faith. We don't know all God has in store for us. I don't think we could even begin to articulate or begin to describe the beauty, the magnificence of the treasures of the inheritance of our eternal life with Christ Jesus that are ahead of us. And the only reason why we can't see it is because it's being obscured and darkened by sin and the darkness of the world we live in. We look at the fool's gold, all the things of this life as the rewards, not realizing that these are not rewards, they're temporal pleasures that fade away and can be lost in a second But the reward that God gives you, nobody could take. Nobody could destroy. Why do we labor for the rewards of this life, for the accolades of men, for the the pleasures of this world when we have something so much better? You know why? Because we don't believe it. It's a matter of faith. If you truly believe if you truly believe that it's true, that this is what God has in store for you, it will radically transform the way you act. But if your faith is weak, if it's diminished, if it, you're like, eh, whatever, I don't really believe it. 
You may not say you don't believe it, but it'll be evident in our attitude. It'll be evident in our life. So what are the practical implications we draw this? A few. Number one, whatever vocation God calls you to, I want you to realize it is an honorable call. Vocation, the word vocation literally means calling. And that means whatever you are doing in life, whatever profession, whatever job, however honorable or dishonorable may be in the eyes of men, it is honorable and holy in the eyes of God. The sacred office is not merely the pastor, but every one of us has a sacred calling. It doesn't matter if you are a lawyer on Fifth Avenue, you're a housewife, whatever your calling is, is honorable and holy. And therefore, whatever call you have, do it to the glory of God. Do your very best. Do it with excellence. Do it unto God. And realize that you are to do what's right even when nobody is looking. It's called integrity, it's called honor, and it's called the fear of God. Secondly, we have to see that in whatever we are called to do, we should do so with a sense of excellence. We should seek to be the best at whatever we do. Joseph wasn't content to just be a mediocre slave in the household of Potiphar. He strove to be the best to the point that he was called to be the chief steward of the house of Potiphar. And I don't think it was that he wanted the ambition to be number one. It's that he did what was excellent in the eyes of God. If your ambition is just to be number one for the sake of being number one, then guess what? God knows that too. And that's the wrong motive. But it's doing what's right in the eyes of God in such a way that you will rise to number one. The cream will rise to the top because people will see it. Thirdly, be pleasant. Be pleasant, employees. Be pleasant in whatever your job is. It's not easy all the time, is it? Depending on your job, you may have cantankerous employers you may have uh, people that you have to deal with that are unpleasant. I, I had an awful dealings with customers this week in the real estate business. Awful. And, 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 and yesterday, I was really tempted to lose it with one of my customers. But that's not the way of Christ, is it? Let's be pleasant, brothers and sisters. Be pleasant in a way, not only that you work in your employment... You guys, you guys, how many people here have ever been to Chick-fil-A? Raise your hands. Would this statement not be true that the employees at Chick-fil-A are some of the most pleasant and welcoming and, and, and joyful customer service reps you've ever met in your life? Amen? At least in my experience, when I go to Chick-fil-A, I am astounded that they smile, they welcome people, they come to your table and they clean it. Can I get you something, sir? Can I get you something? I'm like, whoa. I don't see this anywhere. It's a Christian company. Dan Cathy prides themselves. He gives his workers off every Lord's Day. He closes, shuts shop. And guess what? People who work for Chick-fil-A love working for Chick-fil-A. You see, it goes both ways. It's not just who you are as a worker, but who you are as an employer. And that goes back to the second part. Well, the last part here is, masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You see, the masters were reminded that, hey, listen, this institution exists, but don't get, don't get proud and arrogant. You are to treat those under your care as you would brothers and sisters in Christ. Treat them with fairness and justice. And that means Paul's reminding earthly masters that although they may own people as slaves, they, in fact, are servants and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to the flip side of this. If you're an employer, and I don't think many of us here are, you should treat your employees with dignity, respect, and honor. People should want to work for you, not run from you. What about when we hire contractors to do work for us? I have to admit, 
I have dealt with some really awful contractors too, people that I really dislike. One person recently, I, I was texting, trying to get in a range of time for the contractor to come and look at something, and he cracks a joke making fun of me. Now, while it may seem, oh, I'll just be lighthearted, accept it. What kind of professionalism? What, what does that communicate that you haven't even earned my business and you're making fun of me? He says, it's a joke. Take, be lighthearted. Okay, I'll be lighthearted. I don't want to do business with you. How about that? I guess he didn't need the business. There are a lot of fools. There are a lot of really foolish people out there. And I, done. But on the other hand... I know when I do hire contractors, when I hire people to work for me, I treat them with respect and dignity. I don't try to chew them down to the cheapest price possible and squeeze every bit of labor out of them. I don't try to uh, um, treat them like they're below me and talk to them in an undignified way. In fact, when I have contractors work at my house or do something, I feed them lunch. I'll go out of my way, make a pot of coffee. I try to, I try to make them want to... I want people to talk good about me, not for the sake of me, but for the sake of Christ. I don't want people to say, oh, I work for that guy, Bob. What a, what a jerk. Don't ever work for him. I had one guy do that to me years ago, and it was a total lie. It was the most awful thing. But, but in the end, I was upset because I don't, I don't want to bring and tarnish the reputation of Christ. I think in many ways we're unsympathetic to the plight of so many workers. When you go to McDonald's, even if the worker there is not pleasant as Chick-fil-A, say good morning, say good afternoon, smile at them. You don't know why they're working there. That's That's not a great job, but it's a calling that someone was called to. And they're and it's a dignified job. It's better than being a criminal and working in the streets. Treat that person with dignity and respect. They have to work really hard to earn low wages, and you don't know how much they're struggling financially. If a person has a low-paying job, give them a tip. Encourage their soul if you have the resources to do so. We are so ignorant. We're so arrogant sometimes about the plight of those who are underprivileged, for those who are disenfranchised, for those who don't have abilities or disabilities. We need to be more sympathetic. I'm a capitalist all the way. I believe that capitalism reflects the Bible very much so in terms of delayed gratification, in terms of, of, of each person earning their own keep, but I'm also a believer of being compassionate on those who are weak and poor. The scripture tells us over and over again that we're to be considerate of the poor. We're to be considerate of those who are hurting. We're to be considerate of those in need. And if we fail to do that, I don't care how good of wealthy of a capitalist you are, you're missing the point. God doesn't want us just to go out and work and earn money so that we can keep it all for ourselves, but he wants us to help others. And be thoughtful to others. Well, let me conclude with this. A lot to say here. It's drawing out the applications from a very obscure text that's irrelevant. There's so much more to say, but I want to conclude with this. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or a master doesn't matter if you're an employer or an employee. It doesn't matter if you are hiring someone or you're a contractor. And by the way, if you're a contractor and you freelance and work for someone, do a good job too. Don't take the money and run. Do your job. The bottom line is we're all going to stand before Christ one day. God's going to evaluate all of us. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10 says, Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Remember, we're not people pleasers, we're God pleasers. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the fear of God. And as be- this is written to believers. We don't have to fear eternal judgment. 
But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every one of us one day, and we will receive what is due based on what we did in the body. When we get to heaven, I do believe in rewards, and I do believe that some believers are going to have great rewards and are going to have great places in heaven, and there are going to be some of us who are going to have very small places in heaven. But we'll just be thankful to be in heaven, won't we? David said it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to have all the the riches of this world. So I'm I'm okay if I'm a doorkeeper in the house of God. But there's going to be a lot of shame on that day when we say what could have been done when we see our failures. And I think Pastor Paul has shared this before and I agree 100% with him that in Book of Revelation when it says those tears will be shed and he'll wipe away those tears, I believe those tears, and Paul has shared this with me, those are going to be the tears that we feel on Judgment Day when, when it's shown, the failures. But then Christ says, I love you, you're my child, your sins are forgiven, welcome into the joy of thy master. We may not have the place in heaven that we could have had, and those tears will come down and Christ will wipe it away, and the joy of just being with Christ will be enough. And so my, my appeal to all of you today is this, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that matters, is your faith in Christ. All that matters is that, is that you have humbled yourself, that you've repented of your sin. It doesn't matter your status in this world. What matters is your status with God. And your status with God could change today. You can go from being a, a child of disobedience to an object of God's wrath to being considered one of the family and seated at the table with Christ. The choice is ours. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. Come to him in faith. He will forgive you of your sins. Believe that he rose from the dead, that he is the Lord and Savior of all. Serve him, not man, and God will bless you.